Welcome to SAS Talk with Kim, your sustainability action series podcast highlighting how local governments are leading the way toward a more sustainable future. I'm your host, Kim Lundgren. I've spent the last 16 years working for and with local governments to help them create resilient, inclusive, thriving communities. I started this podcast series to connect you with the key people on the ground putting sustainability into action in their communities. Hello, everybody, and welcome to SAS Talk with Kim sustainability action series this is a new podcast that we've started here at KLA to talk about best practices um, and examples from around the country uh, for local governments on climate change and sustainability programs we are thrilled today to have Missy Stoltz with us to talk about her recently completed soon to be defended uh, PhD dissertation on planning to be prepared Uh, where she was looking at local government's efforts uh, in climate action planning. Missy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Kim. Well, you know it's my pleasure. Uh, As many of the listeners know, Missy and I go way back to our ICLEI days. Uh, Missy was my first hire at ICLEI back in 2007. So clearly, Missy, you've been uh, in this field a long time. You were with us when we were at ICLEI kind of trying to create a program around local governments taking action on climate adaptation. Um, So you've got a ton of experience, but I think maybe take us back a little bit and and talk about what really inspired you to to hone in on on this research. Yeah, it's a great question, Kim. I think um, as most of your listeners know, I hope all of them know, is the reality that, that our climate is changing. And we can see this, I mean, if you look back, 2015 was the warmest year on record. It beat out 2014, which beat out the year before. I mean, we can go back. And right now, 2016 is um, on course to be the new warmest year ever. So the fact is, our climate is changing, and and we know that, and we experience that at all scales. But most intimately, we experience climate change in our local communities, right? It's where we flood. It's where tornadoes and extreme events impact our homes or our businesses, our economy, and our social networks. And so the the intimacy and the urgency of climate change at the local level really inspired me to to dig into this uh, broad field of climate adaptation and to really understand what are local governments thinking about doing and planning to do in order to prepare for existing and future changes in climate. And we know this is so important, as you've said, it's something we're already seeing. And, you know, back in the day, um, I know when I worked in a local government in the early 2000s and we were taking on climate mitigation, a lot of folks wouldn't even think about talking about climate adaptation. At that point, we weren't really seeing as many of the the impacts. um, And they felt like if we started talking about climate adaptation, it meant we gave up on climate mitigation, and that's really not the case anymore. I mean, can you kind of talk about those that synergy between mitigation and adaptation? Absolutely. So there's a number of what we call kind of win-win strategies that help you both mitigate, reduce your greenhouse gas emissions, and adapt. And those are things like urban forestry, right? Planting trees help sequester carbon dioxide, but they also help cool uh, your environment. And so it's kind of a win-win and they can help manage stormwater. They also add to property values. So they make your residents, um, their property more aesthetically pleasing, but they also add economic value to our communities. But I think that the main frame that I think about when I think about climate change is um, it's a phrase that was uh, put forward by the United Nations, um, a special working group they had 
that said, what we have to do as society is we have to manage the unavoidable, which is basically we, we have to accept the fact that our climate is changing and there are impacts that are unavoidable, so we need to adapt to those. But we also need to avoid the unmanageable. And what I mean there is we have to mitigate because we have to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions so that climate change doesn't become so severe that we actually can't manage it. So adaptation and mitigation have to go hand in hand. And in fact, both of them need to be strategies that local communities, states, nations, et cetera, have to think about when they think about a holistic climate program. That's a great quote and kind of philosophy to live by, I think, especially for local governments moving forward. You know, it's interesting. There's there's so many programs now, um, but we still have so much work to do. You know, when at ICLEI, we started that Climate Resilient Communities Program back in 2006. And that framework is, is still pretty good today as far as the, the steps to go through. I know there's been a lot more research, and of course we've seen um, organizations uh, like Rockefeller step up with the 100 Resilient Cities. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about you know, how, first off, how do you define resilience and how is it different or not from climate adaptation? Good question. So resilience, um, I'll start by kind of how the field has historically defined it and then I think where it's moving to. Historically, resilience has been thought of like a rubber band, right, which is you can stretch it and stretch it and when you get some sort of perturbation or impact, it bounces back. That's a resilient system. That's a historical definition um, and that's kind of how a lot of organizations think um, Rockefeller has traditionally thought in that way. And we're starting to see them shift a little bit um, to what I call uh, a real definition of resilience kind of in, in a world plagued by climate change. And that is a rubber band model only makes sense if you want to bounce back to what you were before. Well, I would argue that in most of our cities, for a lot of our residents, you wouldn't want to bounce back. Right? Poverty is one of the most resilient systems using that traditional definition because there's a trap. You're, you're often trapped in poverty. Well, that's not good enough. So to me, resilience is sometimes about bouncing back because there are some systems that you want to bounce back. Um, perhaps our economy, you want to bounce back. But it's also about bouncing forward and acknowledging that we have to constantly keep changing and evolving, especially because climate change doesn't stop. Right? So there isn't an endpoint at which date we say, okay, the climate has changed. It continues changing, and in the face of a continuing change, continually changing climate, we have to continue to change. So we need to keep bouncing forward and evolving as communities, as societies, as individuals. So that's kind of this new definition, um, not just bouncing back, bouncing forward, that, that I think about and a lot of others are starting to think about when they think about resilience. You framed that, Missy, where, you know, this whole bouncing forward and talking about the, the poverty example, I think that's such a, a great example of showing how resilience and sustainability really are working together. Um, you know, I do tend to work in the broader comprehensive sustainability arena, um, which you and I have always talked about is the umbrella. Um, how do you see resilience kind of fitting in with that? I'm glad you asked that. Yeah, I agree with you. Sustainability is this overarching um, umbrella that's kind of made up of equity and environmental and economic concerns and balance with each other. But to me, resilience is, is that handle that we hold that really allows the sustainability um, umbrella to be open and all-encompassing. And so you need that strong foundation or that strong handle of the umbrella, um, which is a resilient system, in order to be able to achieve economic, environmental, and equity kind of balance in systems. That's the way I think about the relationship between the two. They're mutually uh, reinforcing 
and when they work together, you really can progressively move forward towards our, our goal, ultimately, which is more resilient, sustainable, and just communities. Yeah, that's so, I love the way you framed that as the handle, resilience as the handle of the sustainability umbrella, and it'd be great to see more local governments really thinking about that frame. Well, let's let's dive in a little bit to your specific research. Um, I mean, you and your colleagues looked at about 44 different local climate adaptation plans uh, from across the country. Um, you know, what were some of the most innovative strategies you saw when you were reviewing those? Right. So we looked at these 44 what we call standalone climate adaptation plans. So they're not climate action plans that look at both mitigation and adaptation. They are exclusively focused on preparing for climate change. So that's kind of a little distinct. Um, but across those plans, I think what's most interesting is, sure, there, there were probably a handful of what we'll call innovative strategies. Um, and those tended to be things like technological solutions. But what was much, much more pervasive were uh, strategies that local governments have the existing capacity to do. And, and why I think that's really important is sometimes people think that adaptation is new. Um, it's something else that you have to add to your plate. And what we're seeing in these plans with the strategies being prioritized is that's simply not true. Um, that local governments already have the capacity to act now. They already have the vast majority of the tools in their toolboxes and in their toolkits that they could employ now that will help them start preparing for climate change. So I think that's more encouraging. Um, so you, there, there is room for innovation, and I think we'll continue to have to have innovation. But the moral of the story is local governments already have most of the tools they need to start adapting, and that's what we see being prioritized in existing adaptation plans. That's really good to hear because I think you're right. I do think that most local governments feel that, oh, my God, this is yet another thing we have to add on to a new issue they want us to address. Um, but it is interesting. I, I think, you know, your, your, um, the results that you, you've discovered are, are similar to some of the things that, that I've seen um, um, as you know, I'm the chair for the APWA, um, the American Public Works Association Center for Sustainability. And one of the things that I've noticed over the years, I mean, in the early 2000s, I know a lot of our sustainability directors, you know, often felt that public works was their hindrance. They were the problem. They weren't collaborating. They didn't want to talk about greenhouse gas emissions. But on the resilience in, in the adaptation side, I've kind of seen them almost in some cases taking the lead. And in many cases, it is because they're part of that first responder group. They're the first ones out there. And I think the whole idea of being prepared for whether it's natural disasters or other things is something that's kind of ingrained within public works. Did you see anything in your research or in your experience, um, you know, that's kind of showing you know, historically, it was a lot of the planners that were taking the lead on this. Are we seeing more of a relationship between the engineers and public works on the adaptation and resilience side? Another great, great question. Yeah, absolutely. So the types of strategies that we have seen in these plans are, um, there certainly is still a lot of, of planning, and mostly that's integrating or mainstreaming climate change into other plans. So planners still matter, and we love you planners. Um, but we're also seeing a lot more of green infrastructure strategies, right? So kind of acknowledging the, the vast benefits that we get from green infrastructure, like I mentioned before, whether that's stormwater management or heat mitigation. And, of course, public works officials play a prominent role in that space. Um, that's often used for water management, too. Uh, so that's, that's 
certainly a key strategy. We're also seeing a number of strategies focused on physical infrastructure, so how we design our buildings. We also see strategies focused on building codes, and often there's another win-win where we're looking at those building codes and saying, how do we make these buildings really efficient so that we're not wasting energy and we're reducing our greenhouse gas footprint? But at the same time, let's make sure these buildings can withstand flooding events or extreme heat. So we have passive cooling strategies as part of them, for example. Or we have um, in sea level rise threatened places, they make sure that no critical infrastructure is on the first or the second floor. Instead, it's on higher elevations. So if flooding were to take place, that critical infrastructure still operates, meaning the building can still be in operation. And these are all things that public works officials are really shining a light on and saying, hey, guys, we just have to design and think a little bit differently, and we can do really important things that will help us increase our resilience. Architects, engineers, um, again, planners, all different stakeholders in the local community really have a role to play, and we're seeing them step up and voice their concerns and their ideas within these adaptation plans. And I guess kind of along those lines, I mean, you and I know the plan is an essential first step, but it's just that. It's a first step, and the plans are useless if they're, if they're not getting implemented. You know, did your research kind of uncover any um, specific approaches to implementation? Are they implementing at all? Are there challenges there? What, what did you see on the implementation front? Yeah, so I'm going to take this in two ways. From my research... It really was focused on the plans themselves and the planning process that people went through. And the theory there is, as you mentioned, um, while plans are only the first step, the, the theory is if you have a good plan that has solid public participation and input, it's more likely to be implemented. So that's why I focused on, on planning, um, also because that's kind of where we broadly are as a field. That said, from the plans perspective, the implementation and the monitoring components of plans were actually quite weak. They were some of the weakest elements uh, of what we analyzed. And this raises concerns because if you don't identify who's responsible for implementing an action or what time frame in which the action needs to be implemented or ideas for how you're going to fund it or how you're going to measure if it's being successful, all of those things just keep adding up as potential barriers to actualizing the action that you, you want to take. And so there's a little bit of worry that I have of um, will these plans actually translate into on-the-ground actions. So that's from my research perspective. But if, if I take off my kind of little academic hat and put on my practice hat, you and I know, having worked together at ICLE, some work that we've done through KLA more recently, and then some work that I've been doing um, with individual communities while doing my dissertation, is that communities are acting. The problem is that they're not they're not tasked with telling their stories. And so finding documentation of what's happening at the local level is really hard because practitioners are so busy doing the work that they don't have time to step back and write up their stories. So we don't have a lot of really good documentation, but anecdotally what we know is that communities are um, looking at ways to pass new policies that perhaps limit um, where land use uh, development is taking place or they're passing more stringent building codes to help reduce the chance of flooding. So, for example, in Boston, um, where I know you are and where I was for a while, the city has passed Article uh, 60, which mandates that any building on the coastline has to integrate both mitigation and adaptation into their design elements. And when they go forward for review, if the city determines that they have not adequately, let's say, considered sea level rise, they make them take a step back and really rethink how they're going to design their infrastructure so that it can withhandle uh, future changes in sea level rise. That's one example. 
um, Seattle Public Utilities. They have a new design product, a process. They look at both water, uh, sewer systems, and uh, trash and waste collection. And their um, climate change is integrated into every decision that they make, whether that's siding a new pipe, um, making sure that it's not in an area that's uh, prone to flooding, or whether that's figuring out where to build new infrastructure. Um, all of that has to consider climate change. So there's a lot of examples of how this is happening in practice, but again, it's very hard to find documentation. And so I think that's, that's kind of our job as kind of boundary folks is to help local governments do this really important work, but then also tell their stories so others know they're not alone um, and the action really is happening. That's a great that's a great point. And, you know, I think SAS talk is one way I'm trying to get folks stories out there. Um, but yeah, I mean, a, a note to all the consultants that are listening, uh, you know, get on there helping these local governments really tell their stories because you're right, they don't have time to do this with with the budget situation that most local governments are in. You know, we know that our lead climate and sustainability folks in most local governments are wearing multiple hats. Um, so the, you know, the idea of having time to toot their own horn is just kind of preposterous to some of them. Are yeah, you finding, um, is there a more like dominance of local governments taking action maybe along the coast? Like, I mean, obviously Boston, New York, um, I know Baltimore, um, the Florida, Southeast Florida climate compact. Are, are we seeing more action on the coast versus inland? I think you're seeing more um, big action on the coast or more charismatic action because the threat is so much more visceral, right? The seas are literally rising and you can see that and you can feel that. Um, but in kind of middle America, where I'm in Ann Arbor, Michigan right now, and what we face in terms of climate change are kind of more a death by a thousand cuts, right? So we have um, continued flooding. So it's not necessarily catastrophic, but it continues to happen and erode our systems and continuation of uh, rising temperatures. And so we're seeing more heat waves. And so in places like that, we are seeing action. But again, it's just not as perhaps eye-capturing. Uh, so we, we're seeing in places like Chicago. Chicago has been leading the charge for a long time on green roofs. Um, and Philadelphia has been leading the charge on uh, green infrastructure by kind of replacing a third of their landscape. They actually, of hard infrastructure, they want to replace with green infrastructure to manage stormwater. In Ann Arbor, Michigan, we have a stormwater utility, which uh, necessitates that residents have to pay into this utility based on how much impervious surface they have. And so if I were to, let's say, take out my driveway or put in permeable pavement, then my rate would go down. And the idea there is flooding is a serious concern that we have here. In fact, today we're under a flood warning uh, in Ann Arbor. And anything that we can do as a community to manage that risk gets us kind of benefits because it's benefits for the whole community. And it's certainly a benefit for me and my property not flooding. So what I think the, to answer your question is we are seeing a lot of action on the coast that gets more attention. But that does not mean we are not seeing a lot of action in middle America because we are. It's just different and at a, a different scale. Okay. So, I mean, do you want to just give us like a little synopsis of kind of how you feel the, the adaptation resilience field has changed over the course of your career? Sure. Well, I, I think you framed this really nicely at the beginning, which is when both of us came into this landscape, mitigation or reducing greenhouse gas emissions was the dominant um, vernacular focus for communities. And then as impacts started to happen and as the science became more and more clear that we weren't mitigating fast enough uh, to, to eliminate all impacts, there just became this awareness that we needed to adapt. 
And so I think the first big shift that we've seen is adaptation is now accepted um, within almost all communities. And not only that, adaptation is actually um, becoming much more politically palatable than mitigation. And what I mean there is it doesn't actually matter why the climate is changing or why natural disasters are getting uh, happening more frequently or getting more intense. It doesn't matter. The fact that they are happening and they're impacting local communities means that we need to act. And so it doesn't matter if you're a conservative mayor or a liberal mayor or somewhere in between, taking action to prepare your community for disasters is good sense. And so we're starting to see more and more communities start with kind of disaster management, hazard mitigation, and then transitioning into kind of climate, long-term climate thinking. Then, um, and, and we think that that actually might become an on-ramp to mitigation because if you start preparing for impacts, at some point you might say, oh no, if these impacts continue happening and they get more intense, we can't manage that. So how do we avoid these impacts ever happening in the first place? And then that, starting with adaptation, becomes an on-ramp to mitigation. And that's a complete transition from what we saw, you know, 10 years ago, communities that we worked with were starting on mitigation, and then we tried to get them to adaptation. The switch really is, I think, adaptation is an on-ramp for a lot more communities to mitigation. Very cool. And I, I think you're right. That's really an interesting way to look at it. It, it has it has been shifted. And I, I, you know, from my perspective, I don't care how we get there, right, as long as we're doing both um, and really thinking about things holistically. Um, so we're coming towards the end of our time now. So I'm wondering if you could give, you know, our listeners kind of that what is that quick like checklist? What are those five or however many things that they can do right now that they can just get started on, you know, trying to be prepared for a change in climate? Number one, get started. No matter where you are, no matter what issues you face, just get started. I think that's the most important thing. It's the biggest barrier. Just just jump in. There are resources out there to help you, whether that be um, places like KLA or whether that be local academic institutions. Just start is absolutely unequivocally step one. I think number two is engage your community. Bring together, you don't have to do this by yourself. You probably have very smart and passionate people in your community, in your nonprofits, in your local institutions, in your businesses, your public sector. Engage them and help have them help you go through this process. Um, I, and thirdly, I'd say work within and across existing institutional or government silos that you have. You have a lot of expertise in public works, in planning. Use that expertise, but also use it together. So come together, form perhaps an inner uh, departmental team to help think about these issues or whatever mechanism is appropriate, but, but use each other internally and, like I said in, in kind of point two, use the community. Um, and then I guess the last two would be partner. Just partner broadly and wildly. There are a lot of people out there to help you. And then fourth, um, be flexible. There is no right answer. Um, there are better answers. So just keep learning, be flexible, use what we call an adaptive management approach. Um, and again, go back to the first thing, get started, just get started. Great. Well, I think, you know, Missy, the, this field has been lucky to have you these past, uh, this past decade. Uh, and I think your work is going to be very useful for folks moving forward. Um, you know, I think just in closing, what would you say is your like vision of your your ultimate hope of the impact of your research? I, I just want it to be used by practitioners to help them do more planning and then ultimately 
implement those plans so that we have more and more communities that are preparing for climate change. That's the goal. And I look forward to working with you, Kim, and all of the other really passionate, smart people out there to help figure out how we create a more resilient society. Awesome, Missy. Thank you so much for taking the time. Of course, all of us here at KLA are huge Missy Stoltz fans, uh, along with probably the majority of our listeners. Um, You truly are a a gem uh, for this field, and uh, we really appreciate all the work that you've done. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Take care, Kim. And folks can hear our podcast at KimLundgrenAssociates.com. And we'll look forward to talking to you next time. Thank you for joining this episode of SAS Talk with Kim. You can listen to other podcasts in our sustainability action series at sastalkwithkim.com. Remember that action is the key to your community's sustainable future. What will you act on today?